This morning's scripture comes from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You may be seated. Uh, we need to take a second and just be thankful for and realize how great of a blessing it is to have this band. Uh, so let's just do this for these guys. I don't know if you've been counting, but we haven't had all of them together since about Christmas time. Uh, Jason and Kelly welcomed Nehemiah into the world the day after Christmas, right? Day after what, what? And so, is this his first Sunday? Second. All right. I, I, did I miss his first one? I must have missed it. Oh, he's preaching next week? That's awesome. Time to retire. Uh, so anyways, it's just a blessing to have them back together again, and I wanted to recognize that. God's good to us uh, in the gifts he gives us, and so uh, let's be grateful for that. And I don't know, I just want to sing that last song again and again and again because that was beautiful. <clears throat> so my name's Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here. Jason, that I just mentioned, is also one of the pastors here. Kanan mentioned earlier the uh, opportunity for baptism coming up. Please let us know if you want to uh, get baptized or if you just have questions about that. If you've never really been in a church that's talked about baptism, uh, we do um, uh, credo baptism, not pedo baptism. That just means believer baptism rather than infant baptism. Uh, it's not a huge divide for us. It's just a distinction for us. Uh, we don't argue with people that do baby baptism. We just believe the uh, scriptures point us more firmly towards uh, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ with a volition of, a, of an adult who knows uh, sin and reality of their own need for Jesus and then recognizing that need uh, through baptism and uh, the confession, the outward uh, expression of what's happened inside of us, and that is that Jesus has washed us, that we would be dead like humans living underwater. can't happen, uh, but that Christ has risen us from the dead and given us new life. Um, and so that's what we celebrate in baptism. So we're going to do that together on March 25th, I believe. Is that the date that Canaan just shared with us? 
Um, and then uh, we're going to do it in style, though. We're going to do it out near sunset. Uh, yeah, 25th. We're going to do it out at the sunset, and then you can bring your phones and do the, all the selfies and stuff. And uh, uh, But before that, we'll have a picnic together. Um, and so we're going to organize um, sharing meals and plates and just drinks and all that type of stuff and just go party under a pavilion for a little bit before we baptize. So look forward to that on the 25th of March. Uh, that's just after uh, Daylight Savings begins, and so it'll be, um, it'll be a, a later-ish type of a meal. Um, in a fun time together. So again, again uh, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. I uh, want to welcome you if you're new with us. Um, Kanan also mentioned connect cards that we have in the back. You can give us some information about who you are. Uh, if you're just checking out, checking us out, we encourage you to hang around a little bit. Uh, it's hard to know kind of who we are and what's going on by just a you know one meal taste. Um, so come on back, uh, meet some folks, sit down in a city group maybe sometime and, and, and discuss scripture with people. Uh, those information about those are on the website. Um, and please know, like, we really are excited to welcome folks who might not really be uh, following Jesus at this moment in their life. If you're at a place where you're kind of skeptical about the church and you're kind of wondering what is this whole thing about, uh, we really like to engage with you, ask, answer, answer questions that you might have to ask. Uh, we don't have all the answers at all. We're just a group of uh, messy sinners trying to figure out life as Jesus leads us. Um, and so uh, that's what we hope ultimately you're pointed towards is just that Jesus is real uh, and that faith in him and living uh, life as he lived and, and falling flat on our faces and receiving grace from him is just, that's what life is made of. Um, and so it's a joy for us to do that together as a community of followers um, and, and walk in that. So uh, please just uh, continue to let us know if we can ever help you with anything or answer any questions or dig in at all. So... Um, yeah, so that's that. We're in the series. Uh, we're almost done. We're at e uh, wait, week eight, um, and maybe if I can talk today, we'll get through week eight um, of this series called A People Planted. And really, the concept behind this series is trying to understand what we as a body of Christ are, are to be like, what, what, what is supposed to be our makeup as we uh, live in this city, um, as we engage with uh, both God, being faithful to him, and with culture, being free to engage in this world, uh, and, and try to do that by holding up the faith and also being uh, a people who are known by our love and by our compassion uh, and by our involvement in the lives of those who don't necessarily look at the world the same way that we do or believe in uh, God or look to Jesus as Savior. And so we've been doing that uh, over the last couple of weeks. We kind of began this whole thing by looking at the life of a prophet in the Old Testament. His name was Daniel. He had a couple friends. They had really hard names to pronounce. Um, and they were exiles in a land called Babylon. Um, and that's basically Bible speak for evil place. Um, it was the worst kingdom ever. And uh, the king of that kingdom was a megalomaniac, uh, like murdered people for fun type of thing, and uh, just tried to take over the world, you know, just like all of the evil people in all of the superhero movies. So he was that incarnate, and he pulled these people out of their home, uh, and he made them worship their gods and, and kind of wanted to steer them away from faithfulness to true um, to to true Israel, to true God. And so Daniel, we see in his life as we kind of engaged with him in the early, early part of the book of Daniel, what, it, what was it like for him to live in that wicked world? Uh, and what we found is really, really surprising is that Daniel became one of the best people in that kingdom. Uh, not the best Israelite, in that, but the best Babylonian. And it's, it's kind of mind-boggling. It's like, wait a minute, how do you reconcile that idea with the whole staying faithful to God? And we learned a lot from that in the first couple weeks of this series, so I encourage you to listen to those if you're curious about that, because I can't unpack it all today. Um, but basically, the last, uh, starting last week, we kind of took a turn in this series, 
Um, and uh, the last week, and then this week, and then next week, we've actually turned the page into the New Testament uh, because we've kind of wanted to look at what are some corporate identifiers for us as a church um, living in the midst of our own Babylon. What are some things that we as a people, not just me, not just you, but us together, what are some things that we together should be identified by? What are some characteristics that we should have? And the New Testament um, uh, writers point a lot to this because so much of what they write were corrective measures for the church. They were saying to the church, hey, uh, to follow Jesus and live like you're living isn't consistent. <laughs> I want to wake you up so that you can believe in Jesus and reflect Jesus as a people. Uh, and so last week we looked at what that looks like for those who might not believe the gospel and are wounded by the world around them. What do we want them to encounter when they meet us? What do we want the world who has been turned away in many places by religion, what do we want them to encounter when they find a people that are following after Jesus? And this week we really are going to look at, and was already convicting just to read that passage from James, uh, who, by the way, is the brother of Jesus. He's going to help us look at ourselves in the mirror and consider how the gospel transforms, transforms the way we treat people, in particular poor people. And so that's what we're looking at here in James. So I'm going to read a few of the verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing that Jason just read, but I'm going to read uh, James 2. Um, I'm going to go 1 through 7. So here we go. This is James 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's pray and we'll dig in. God, thanks for this day. Thank you for uh, just a few more days of cool weather before we enter the fire. Uh, we love you and we know that you have built us to be a people that reflect your name, uh, that you have planted us into this place. And for some of us, we're kind of figuring that out. What does it mean to be uh, in this city? We're figuring out jobs. We're figuring out education. We're figuring out relationships. We're figuring out where to live. Uh, and I pray, God, that in the midst of all of this figuring, that the church would be a, a priority for us, that, that identifying ourselves with a body of believers uh, because we are your disciples would be something that matters for us. And more than just touching a, a, a church attendance situation or, or just having a, a light involvement, God, would you show us how to be transformed as a group of people together? Uh, God, would you show us how that a, a group of messy sinners can actually glorify your name and, and reflect the character and the nature of God through our conduct in a city? Uh, it's, it's a novel concept, God, and, and most of us don't have a living example of it. God, we really ache to see what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus and to be faithful to engage the world that we live in. Lord, we want to do this. We don't want to lose ourselves uh, in just churchiness, and we also don't want to lose ourselves in the worldliness, God. We want to be found in this tough middle place where we love you and we love your bride, but we love the world so much that we would low, lower ourselves and give ourselves and, 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 and do costly things in order to be a part of your kingdom expanding in St. Pete. 
God, we know this city's changing and there's no mistaking it. We pray, God, that you would change us too, but you would change us in a different direction, that you would change us toward godliness, you would change us toward holiness, that you would change us toward seeing, knowing, and believing in Jesus and reflecting him to the world that's watching. God, we need you for these things. They are tasks far too large for us. So train our hearts more than just our heads. Train our hearts and help us see Jesus today, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So just a forewarning, we've got to get kind of miserable and heavy and sad for a moment today in order to truly see the impact of this passage. Because if we just see it as some rules, it's not going to do anything for us. Um, but if we see the poverty of our own souls and what Jesus has done in response to that poverty, it'll change everything about the way that we look at the poor in this world. And I think in this conversation, it's one that is often, uh, it just stirs emotions. It's like that commercial for the dogs, you know? You know what I'm talking about. It's got that Sarah McLaughlin song, you know, like that's been forever ruined because of the commercial. And you just like... I, I mean, I know the dogs are sad, <laughs> but I don't want to see the commercial. Like, I'm in the middle of the Super Bowl, or I'm in the middle of my show, and you're dragging everything down with the dog commercial. But when it comes to poverty in the world, we, we know, right? We know, but we often don't want to know. Or when the commercial comes on, we flip quick. We revert to that last channel because then we don't have to deal with the confrontation of the existence of poverty in our world. But the facts are absolutely overwhelming. Uh, the truth of poverty has always been and it always will be until Jesus returns and sets everything right. Why? Because we're just a mess. Everything about us individually and everything about us corporately and everything about us governance-wise, it's all a mess. It's broken. And that's the reality. And so we need to see that reality and, and look at it for a minute and, and move into this uncomfortable space in order for God to really expose our own sin because we're a part of the problem. And that's a really intense statement to make, right? And I look at myself first and say, I'm a part of the problem. My spending is part of the problem, right? The way I've conducted myself is part of the problem. My negligence is part of the problem. My apathy is part of the problem. My lack of leadership is part of the problem. And we have to own this today if we're really going to see this passage come and hit us in a beautiful way that will actually do something to transform our hearts rather than just press us down under a bunch of guilt, all right? But we've got to go there for a minute. But I promise we'll come up for air and Jesus will be glorious in the midst of that work. So just know this, that half of the world's population, more than 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day. It's a staggering number, especially when we sit in the midst of condos and townhomes being built and developed and for sale for six to $900,000, right? It's just like, it's, it's earth-shattering to think that half of the world's population lives on less than $2.50 a day. And more than 1.3 billion live in extreme poverty, which is even half of 250 a day, a dollar 25 a day. In 2011, 165 million children under the age of five were stunted 
they had a reduced rate of growth and development due to chronic malnourishment. That's insane. 165 million children. 80% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day. So that's just insane. If you're a math person, that's $3,640 a year. And the thing is, is it's not just in places like India and Africa and Mexico, right? We know there is real poverty in our own country. It is here as well. Current estimates on poverty in the U.S. is that 43 million Americans lived in poverty in 2016. And it goes more than just in the U.S. It goes all the way down here to the state of Florida, in which a million children were living in poverty in 2013. To make a million work out for us, it's actually one in every four kids in our state. One in every four kids in our state lives in poverty. And then let's boil it down to our own metro area. In Hillsboro, Pinellas, and Pasco counties, 50% of students are on reduced or free meals. That's more than 221,000 kids across the Bay Area because their parents can't afford to feed them, so they're on reduced meals. 50% is one in two. <laughs> I know you know that. That's a lot of kids. It's intense. And for some of you, you've chosen professions because of these numbers, right? You're doing what you're doing because at some point in your life, these numbers made you say, I want to be a part of the solution, right? And some of you chose a profession, not because of these things, but it's been on your mind. You've thought about it. You've thought, you've thought man, if, if I can be somebody who makes a reasonable living, I could be a part of solutions. I could either serve or give or help or maybe one day adopt a child out of poverty so that they can have a better chance at development and not starve all of their growing life. Right? We, we're impacted by these things. They're true facts, and we know that they're there, but we often, you know, we change the channel. And I get it, because it's tough and it's uncomfortable. And I think bottom line, what it does to us is it leads us to this point of understanding that we have something to do, and we've chosen not to do it. I think that's what ultimately happens when we come and we confront this, this issue of poverty, and we know that it's not just across an ocean, but it's actually right here in our own home. Ultimately, we know I should probably help. And so it's convicting to look at this stuff, isn't it? It's convicting to understand that this is real and it's in my life or it's around my life. And all of this is a result of the brokenness of sin, right? We know that God created a good world with plenty of provision uh, where man and woman were made to live and, and, and cultivate a land and to share the goodness of of harvest with one another uh, and, and to build an economy uh, of, of love and, and codependence on each other, not in an unhealthy way, but in a, a healthy way where they could love one another in a way where they would give up things for each other and they could actually build a society like that. And that was God's vision of, of humanity and it broke with the first parents that we had because they chose self over others and they decided they wanted to be their own God, just like you and I would have decided that very same day. And we know that the brokenness of the world means that the world just is a mean place. It's a really tough world. It's not nice here, right? Even us who are in basically wealth, we still feel aches 
and pains of the broken system, right? Maybe you had to get a bunch of debt to get that degree, to get that job, and you know now that you're just in a place of bondage for how many years because of the way the system is. It's just broken. That's the way it is. We know that all of this is not just a surface matter, but it goes down deep into the heart. We also know that Scripture is nowhere near silent when it comes to the existence of poverty. Proverbs 21.13 says, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Job 22 speaks some convicting words. Starting in verse 6, it says this, For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of waters cover you. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 calls us to an engagement with poverty in the world, saying this, that we should open our mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And even the New Testament, 1 John three seventeen says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And so God is not silent in his declarations that poverty not only exists, but that we as people who would claim to follow after God do have a responsibility to look out for, to speak up for, and to act on behalf of the poor. And that also, often we have a bit of ownership to take hold of, to say, I'm not always a part of the solution. I am actually sometimes part of the problem. And poverty, as put forth in the Bible, uh, there's, there's... a myriad of causes that the Bible talks about. One of it is that there's a factor of oppression. There's a judicial system often weighed in favor of the powerful. Or there's these loans that are given with excessive interest, or there are often unjust low wages. The Bible talks about these things existing. It talks about these different causes of poverty in the world. Many of the Old Testament prophets actually blamed the rich when there was extreme uh, differences between the rich and the poor. Amos and Ezekiel and Micah and Isaiah, they all called out rich people for adding to the oppression of the world, for not opening their hands and sharing, but rather closing their hands and their hearts and taking uh, captive all the things that they were given by God. And even when you look at the Mosaic Law, there was specific aspects of the Mosaic law that were given to Israel to help alleviate the disparity between rich and poor. Have you ever heard of the year of Jubilee? You ever heard that talked about? The whole point of the year of Jubilee was to set those free who were in debt. That was the point. It was a, it was a reset every seven years for the people in Israel because often you would find a generation get behind and then what happens to their generation? They would get further behind and then the generation after them would get further behind and we've seen it and we know it because the poor get poorer and the rich get richer and the year of Jubilee was a severance to that issue. It helped bring that disparity more even. 
It didn't completely eradicate poverty, but it changed the playing ground a little bit. And so we even see God's desire for the, the playing field to be leveled, so to say, uh, through the Mosaic law. God has always been concerned with alleviating the disparaging uh, differences between the haves and the have-nots. And to make it more poignant, God, in sending Jesus Christ, did something extremely radical. Jesus, the Son of God, whom we read again and again, Hebrews and Colossians, we see it in in, in his own declarations. He was the physical uh, glory of God being shown on this earth. And who were his closest friends? Fishermen, right? He was friends with sinners. And sinners not meaning just people who sin, but there was a class of people in Israel in that day called sinners. They were basically the deplorables. And Jesus was their friend, right? The ones who didn't have audience with any of the religious uh, elite people had audience with Jesus and found welcome there. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, those who were pushed to the margins of society, Jesus welcomed. And some of his most extreme arguments were with the scribes and the Pharisees and the people who had power because they were not being compassionate to the poor. Jesus confronted those issues. And one of his most famous stories, you've probably heard it a million times, is the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? A man who was left with nothing, who was beaten and robbed and cast to the side of a road. Jesus told a story of a Samaritan who came to his rescue. Basically, to an Israelite, Israelite, a Samaritan was the dirtiest person imaginable. And Jesus said, you and your religion are not helping those in need. But I see the heart of God enacted in someone who would give of themselves to take care of someone who couldn't take care of themselves. The point of all this is that God knows that the world is broken. And that one of the results of the brokenness of our sin and our selfishness and the world's selfishness is the existence of a world that oppresses the poor and the establishment of societies and systems and communities that reward the rich and continue to press down the poor. It is a result of our brokenness and our sin. And into that world, Jesus sends his church. Into a world with the existence of all these things, Jesus sends his church so as to present a different kingdom, a a world operating with a different set of values. The church is to be pushed out into the world to show the world how God would conduct himself to build a different set of operating principles. That ultimately, we as Jesus' disciples would be a testimony and a visual representation of the heart of God toward all people, including the poor. That is what Jesus sent when he sent the church. And James, his brother, reminds the church that that the sin of partiality is not to be taken lightly. Again, in verses 1 through 4 of our passage, Jesus confronts the church and says, if this guy that's dressed like you comes in, You put them in the front row. Well, not here in the front row. The front row is the bad place. You put them in the nice spot in the middle, you know? But when the guy that's not dressed like that and he doesn't have a ring on and you tell him to sit on the floor or you give him one of those chairs in the back, (laughs) 
You're showing partiality and you ought not do so. He confronts this reality in saying that faith in Jesus Christ and a life that shows partiality among people are fundamentally incompatible with one another. You can't have one and continue to maintain the other. There's a breaking that must happen because of what God has done for us. And I believe that partiality is a natural consequence of self-righteous religion. Hang on to this for a minute. It's going to take a minute for us to all get to this. Religion, the way that we describe it here, is not what we're doing in this moment. Religion is man's efforts to make themselves right and polished and ready to come to God. And we know because of the gospel that none of us can do good enough, that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, and so religion is empty. It's a continual vicious cycle that tries to get us ourselves ahead and present ourselves as good enough to God while all the, long, all the way along we know that no one is good enough. Religion keeps you belly button gazing. Religion keeps you focused on the self, keeps you looking inward, keeps you looking at your own conduct and your own effort. It keeps you looking at your own good deeds and holding those good deeds up high, which eventually results in measuring the bad deeds of others so that others might be pushed down low. The primary focus of religion is to work on the self for the sake of the self in order to attempt to alleviate the position of self into a good standing before God. It's all about self, making myself something that I need to be in order to get myself right with God. And the gospel liberates us from these self-centered concerns because we know that it is not us who puts us in good standing with God, but it is Jesus in his work to live and to die and to rise that puts us in right standing with God. And because of the work of Jesus to put us in right standing with God, now our efforts of self-righteousness are not needed to get right with God. What is needed to get right with God is simply repentance and faith. It's way too easy, and it's actually true. It's just repentance and faith that makes you spotless, pure, and perfect before the God of all heaven and earth. It's just repentance and faith. Owning your sin, saying, Jesus, I, not we, but I, have fallen short of the glory of God because of my lust, because of my greed, because of my anger. Sorry, I'm confessing. Fill in the blank. I that's repentance. And faith is Jesus is enough to cover that massive gap between my righteousness and God's holiness because the gap cannot be reached by my own efforts. So, therefore, I do not have to be primarily concerned about all of my righteous deeds. I can actually begin to live a life that considers others. It's a glorious transformation. I can actually start to walk through the world and look with concern and hope and desire to see others be served and ultimately be shown the good gospel of Jesus Christ that I myself have been, sh been shown. 
And what's even better about this whole thing is that it doesn't leave us with the need to separate ourselves from others. And I think this is where the sin of partiality is most grievous. Because so long as someone is dirtier or poorer or has achieved less or doesn't measure to our societal standards as highly as I do, so long as there is someone like that out there, then I can feel better about myself. Man, my heart is dark, right? To think that that's behind my mistreatment of the poor is gut-wrenching. To think in some ways I want them to stay there. I want them to continue in undeservedness. I want them to stay needy so that I can show that I deserve something, that I've achieved something, that I'm better than someone. The gospel severs this idea because we no longer have to be better than anybody. It liberates us to see that, in fact, we're worse. Paul, the writer of uh, two-thirds of the New Testament, called himself the worst sinner of all. What a beautiful thing the gospel moves us toward when we see the transformation that can happen. One of the biggest problems of religion is that it does not create the heart motivation to lead us to give our lives up for others. And ultimately, if we're really going to do what Jesus calls us to do in regards to the poor and the less fortunate, ultimately, it's at a cost to our own lives. And religion does not produce the motivation for you to give up your own life. It's not big enough for that. But the gospel is. And what we see in Scripture is that there is an ultimate justice. You see, there are two big reasons why Jesus is working to transform his disciples toward a different kind of life in the world when it comes to the poor. There's two reasons that this is happening. One of the reasons is because, is because God loves those who are poor. One of the reasons he wants to change our hearts is because he wants to love the poor. And we're his hands and feet, so if our hearts aren't changed and moved outward to love them, they won't be loved God loves the poor, and he wants to show them that love in real and tangible and expressive ways that open their hearts to see not just that he has love for them in this day and in this time, but that he has eternal love for them, an eternal love for them that will wash away all of their brokenness and tears. In our passage, James 2, 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. You see, ultimately, the spiritual needs of human beings are more important to God than the physical needs, but he doesn't get to address those spiritual needs until the physical needs are addressed. And it's often through the addressing of physical needs that spiritual needs are met, and that the need for faith and the need for God are awoken in people's lives. The point of this whole seeking to help and to serve and to love and be compassionate for the poor is that they might ultimately be shown that their spiritual needs are met by another. Jesus, in the opening line of the Sermon on the Mount, said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. A lot of people forget to put the in spirit part. It's very important. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We know that there are needs in the world. 
and the existence of poverty in the world points us to a greater poverty in the world. And that is a spiritual poverty. And that spiritual poverty is a poverty that we all share. And that if we're really going to see what God has done for us, we need to see that we too are poor. That's the second reason that God is transforming disciples when it comes to the heart for the poor. It's because we are poor. We are poor. And ultimately, we don't know it. And we reflect the fact that we don't know it by the way that we mistreat the poor or ignore the poor. God wants to open our eyes to our true poverty. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Revelation 3. It'll be on the screen as well, or you can look at it in your app. Toward the beginning of Revelation, there are letters being written to different churches. And in Revelation 3, starting at verse 14, there's a letter to the church in Laodicea. And Jesus speaks some strong words to this church. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. This is Jesus speaking to the church. He says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you would be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, pause. Okay, so... If you've been in the church for a while, you've heard a lot about hot and cold and lukewarm, and most of it you've probably been told the wrong thing. Um, you can't stop reading at verse 16. Verse 17, for you say, is connected to the hot or cold thing. Okay. Uh, and, and, and it's not that Jesus is against cold and wants hot, or is against hot and wants cold. That's not what this verse is talking about at all. There's value to cold, refreshing water, and there's value to hot water, but neither is valuable when they end up toward the lukewarm thing. Jesus is simply saying, your faith needs to be alive. I don't want it dead in the middle. For you say, and here's what being lukewarm is, verse 17, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. That's lukewarmness. So if Christianity has taught you some other kind of lukewarmness, please, let's follow the Bible. Lukewarmness is saying, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Lukewarmness is a fuel towards partiality the sin that we've been talking about. It's standing in this comfortable, comfortable place saying, what, what, what do I need that I don't have, man? Look at what I'm wearing and what I'm driving and where I live and where I eat. What do I need that I don't have? There's nothing. I've got it all, man. I don't need a thing. Jesus comes to that sentiment with fierceness and says, you're a fool. Not realizing 
Derek, you are wretched. You are pitiable. You are poor, blind, and naked. And you stand there in your self-righteous piety, and you say, I don't need any. I don't need anything. I'm good. I'm good. We don't know the state of poverty that our own souls possess. I'm rich, prospered, I'm good. No. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For they know they are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I told you there'd be good news. I counsel you, verse 18, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I'm saying this to you because I love you. So be zealous and repent. In Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 3, the prophet says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and feast. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. You're poor, you're blind, you're naked, you're pitiable and you have no money to buy anything from God, but he tells you to come. He just says, come with your empty pockets, with the holes in your jeans, not the stylish ones, but the dirty ones. Come to me in your nakedness, in your poverty, in your pitiable state. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Come to me. And guess what kind of money you need? None. <laughs> you don't need a dime to get the righteous clothing of God. You don't need a dime to get the soul-satisfying, pure water of God's Word. You don't need a dime to feast on the everlasting bread of life. You don't need anything. Why? 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. There is not a place on earth as luxurious and restful and glorious and fulfilling and plentiful as heaven. Not a place, not a palace, not a suburb, not a kingdom, 
not a yacht. There is nowhere on earth as glorious and satisfying as heaven. And Jesus lived there. Never knew poverty. Never knew hunger. Never even need to think about shopping to clothe himself. Never had to earn a wage. All of the riches of everything. I don't even know what word to use. We're his. And Paul shows us so graciously, Jesus became poor. So that you, poor soul, could be made rich. Because you were wretched and pitiable and blind and naked. And Jesus said, I will leave all of this privilege that I deserve because I'm God. I will leave all of this glory, which is mine rightfully, because I have no sin and I have no thoughts toward evil. I will leave all of the presence and glory and the singing of angels. I will leave it all to be born to a poor girl in a barn. <laughs> I'll wear sandals. I'll wear them out. I won't have a home. I'll lay my head on a rock. The people that were supposed to love me are going to call me crazy. My friends who I hang out with for a couple of years are going to eventually cast me aside. Israel, whom I came to save, is going to turn me over to Rome so that I'm killed in the worst way possible. And I'm going to hang naked on a tree, wretched and poor and pitiable. My eyes are going to be so swollen up, I might as well be blind. And I'm not going to have a stitch of clothing on. And I'm going to hang there. So that through my death, I can clothe with righteousness those who are wretched and poor and pitiable and naked and blind. This is the trade of the gospel. And if this trade has not impacted our souls, we have no hope of fulfilling what James is saying in his letter. When you see your own spiritual poverty and the length to which Jesus has gone to give you his riches, you'll be transformed into a compassionate per person in a way that religion can never do the trick. So I hope that we ache because of the injustice of the world. We need to sometimes. I hope, and I own this because we're not yet, that we long for and pray for and do something about the needs of the poor. First here and maybe across the world somewhere. I hope. I own not leading us well there conviction like mad this week. Jesus, help us. Amen. Jesus, help us. We can do something. I pray that Jesus would show his love to the poor through us.
and that he would open our eyes to see our own spiritual poverty so that you might truly receive his riches. Maybe then we'll seek justice and serve others like he has served us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have no need. <laughs> but you sent Jesus, who also had no need, into the world as a poor man, as a despised man, as a man living in the margins, so that we could truly have the riches that matter. And God, I just pray for us. We're all, in the grand scheme of things, we're really rich. We really are. And today has nothing to do about guilt for being born in America or having moved here or having had an educational opportunity or being properly nourished in our childhood so that we could grow brains that could actually learn and develop and get an education so that we might obtain a job and have one somewhat securely for a while. All of these things are gifts that have been given to us and we don't have to sit here and feel guilty for them. So God, please don't let that be what resonates for this day. We pray instead, God, that what would resonate is that our eyes would be open to our own poverty and that because of the riches of Jesus that have been poured out on us, we would be transformed to have a heart of compassion. That we would respond first in worship to he who has given himself for us, and then we would also respond with obedience. We would respond with activity, with love, with prayer, with sacrificial giving and living that would be for others because we've been liberated from needing to live for ourselves. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you willingly became poor to make us rich. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is us. Why? Because you fill our every need. We look to you to do that again and again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.